This week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, this week it's a roundtable, and it is a roundtable which kind of came together in the last minute or week. <laughs> uh, we had... We had put, thought we were going to do a series like we like to do series, Jay, right? You know, where we come up with a concept and we right. repeat it every year, you know, like our in the 90s where we take a band from the 70s and 80s and see how they did in the 90s or our digging your scene episodes, which are always really fun. And we wanted to do one where we would talk about record labels of the 90s, although you can't really I mean, basically going to talk to somebody who worked there or maybe a band that was on the label. And what we have found in reaching out in the last couple of years is that. Not a lot of people want to talk to us that worked at record labels. Right. Bands, yes. Well, maybe maybe they're still busy running their label. <laughs> maybe they're other busy. Than that, or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. They've moved on to other challenge. things. So it's sort of a it's a topic. If you're gonna do it by label, it's like specific, yep. but either too specific or not specific enough. Like you can't like mm-hmm. wait hit that middle ground so so we we threw it out to the group on patreon and we said why don't you pick some labels that you think are are worthy of discussion these are probably going to be ones that are have been a little bit under the radar because of the fact that um they're indie labels or they're or they're maybe they were subsidiaries of of majors that didn't get talked about or maybe they were only around for a short time but had some sort of impact so we we threw it out there and said hey why don't you all throw out some names and then we'll set up a time and chat. And so joining us, uh, it's all, it's all folks who either have been here last week or the week before, or, or, or who'll be joining us on the next episode as well. So, uh, <laughs> welcome back Johnny Hooper, who was just here, oh, uh, literally like a week ago. Um, and then also joining us who will be on the next episode as well, or no. Yeah. Uh, Eric Peterson, Hello. because, uh, Hi. Uh, he's his episode com- is going to be coming up very soon. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's coming up. And then also joining us, they've been here before. Phil Fleming, Chris Martz, welcome back. Howdy, hey guys. <laughs> this table is truly round now. We've got enough folks where it's it is. It's not a triangle. It's not a square. Mm-hmm. I would now if only like two more showed up and we can actually do an actual sphere like <laughs> visual that would be great yeah what is what i'm gonna spin my monitor to figure out who talks next <laughs> there you go <laughs> a big wheel if a if a pentagon is five what is it what's octagon it's octagon hexagon 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 okay it's a hexagon table hexagon table that sounds hexagon neat table. um <laughs> that sounds like a badass album title <laughs> hexagon, hexagon table that's the, hexagon the new baroness table. album is called hexagon table there we go i'd have to be a color <laughs> oh that's right i'm sorry 
the new Black Mastodon Hexagon ta- <laughs> album. Hexagon Table from Pineapple Tree. Or what is that band? Is that what they're called? Porcupine Tree. Porcupine Tree. Or, pine- or Pineapple <laughs> Thief. <laughs> Pineapple <laughs> Thief, Porcupine Tree. I just combined them together into <laughs> the one Fair band. band is Pineapple Tree. All right. Oh, so man. I'm going to look at the comments and I'm going to see who commented first. The first person to comment was it Chris Martz or Johnny Hooper? One of the two. I'm going to just throw a, a, a magic coin in the air and say, Johnny Hooper, you mentioned Touch and Go. Mm-hmm. Why'd you pick Touch and Go as, as the label you wanted to talk about? Well, I mean, obviously personal preference. I just feel like um, as an aesthetic, uh, as a group of bands all on one label, I find it overwhelming. Like it's just the... The quality control on that label from the years, what, 1990 through 2002, mm-hmm. remarkable, frankly. And and always kind of staying within a, a particular, you know, like I say, an aesthetic, a, a, like a particular genre. Like you would, you, you know, uh, Chicago rock from 90 to 95, like it, it's clearly defined. And that really appeals to me because those records were so, they were so spot on for me. And uh, I I just never get enough of it, frankly. And you mentioned Chicago. um, The label. Yeah, it was um, founded by, was it Corey Rusk? Is that the name of the gentleman who who runs it? Um, Yeah. And that was actually founded in the early 80s, but a lot of people are going to know him from the uh, a large number of releases in the 90s, um, from Jesus Lizard to, you know, like you mentioned, all the way up into the 2000s and and still very relevant with regards yeah. to... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. TV on the radio. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you had to pick a, a record to represent Touch and Go, what would it be? Boy, that's a tough one. Um it's behind you. Maybe the ones behind you. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm gonna go with uh, Jesus Lizards, uh, Liar, and Slash Goat. I feel like I-, I can't even pick between the two of them. They're so great. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's just magnificent. Chris Martz, you mentioned, well, you mentioned a couple. Let's start with Revelation Records. I don't know a lot about Revelation Records. Can you fill us in? Yeah. Um, Revelation, they kind of started, uh, like, all their, all the majority of their early releases were pretty much establishing New York hardcore and giving them an outlet to put out their records. And get, you know, we're talking Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits, uh, stuff like that. And eventually, they started... As the '90s came, uh, moved along, they started West Coast bands and, and and really expanding their sound. And so, when I was thinking about what makes the label great and what put out, you know, a, a different record, and you know, it's going to be on the label, so 
I'm probably going to listen to it. You know, like they, they put out, I think the one, even though they were hardcore, you know, they started putting out, like they put out the first quicksand. Mm-hmm. hardcore. Yeah. And then you get into, into another. And then later on you'll hear bands like today, uh, Texas is the reason. And who event whose members were from the New York hardcore scene, but decided to have put out this new sound that wasn't really called emo at the time. It was just like a post hardcore thing. Yeah. That was my experience with revelation. Um, one of my favorite bands from that label was a uh, sense field. Uh, let's see. I think they had like two major label records, but, mm. uh, that was, yeah, that, that was the issue with sense field. Once they left revelation, they signed with a major, they got stuck and their album got long but when you're on an independent label and it's such this is so 90s that you would have an independent label that really believed in your record and even if you sounded different from all the other bands on the label it's like you know they're on revelation like oh it probably sounds pretty good or they would like uh, an indie label would put out a sampler of all their bands and Mm -hmm. you might have like like 16 songs from all different bands on the label and it's like all right this might not be something that i like just keep listening to it yeah, looking through their discography, there's some you know very familiar stuff with regards to like a band like Civ is on there and Shades Apart, which has come up in a poll, I believe, uh, not too long ago. And um, a couple other ones that I noticed when I when I was going through. There's also a um, a seven inch or a 12 inch Mike Judge and the Old Smoke. Is that Mike Judge of <laughs> of? Uh, oh, that would be nice. <laughs> of yeah Beavis we gotta work into that i gotta yeah <laughs> uh, into another they they you know into another is another band from that uh label um, they say yeah i got it i i got into revelation later uh i mean i was familiar with their hardcore stuff but but when the when they started doing what was now considered emo that's that's where i jumped in um uh, Sky Cries Mary, I believe, had one record on Revelation or two, um, but Sensefield was was a was a big one for me. It looks like we've uh, reviewed at least two records: Sensefield Building and Texas of the Reason. Do you know who you are mm. on the show in the past? Yeah, interesting. Nice. Um, Eric, you mentioned one. I was not familiar with Estrus. Tell me about Estrus Records. So Estrus is, or was, a Seattle-based record label that dealt with what we probably now call garage punk and surf punk. Um, They they were around from the late 80s, so they were around when the whole sub-pop thing was going on. But their focus was more on that that garage rock sound and that, that surf punk sound and bringing that into the 90s. And to me, once uh, once that first wave of grunge had kind of crested, they were maybe to me the most the most important or prolific or interesting label in coming out of Seattle. And they were releasing records not just by bands from Seattle, but from Canada and Pacific Northwest, but also around the country that all fell into that sound and genre of uh, revved up garage rock, surf rock kind of uh, music. I recognize uh, quite a few of the names from the label, even if I don't necessarily know what they all sound like, uh, like Man or Astro Man, the Soledad Brothers, 
Um, so, so Man Marvel or Astro Man. Man is probably the best known uh, act that was on the label for more than like a seven inch. Um, gotcha. And they're definitely a uh, an acquired taste, but basically they were they were taking surf punk and revving it up with um, kind of sci-fi and spy-fi kind of sounds. And they were a lot of fun. They used a lot of samples and it was always fun to play, you know, where did that sample come from? And uh, they would do covers like the Mystery Science Theater 3000 theme. They covered that, but they would cover like punk songs about flying saucers and that kind of thing. And for a couple of years there, they were um, they they were just on fire with putting out great looking seven inches and releases and being a lot of fun. And especially the seven inch format, I think, is where Asterisk really excelled with uh, cool packaging, uh, great graphic design, and then uh, the, just the whole aesthetic. I thought I thought worked really well. I see and they I had the it, makers. That was yeah, a band least, that I really liked. Well, at least for me in the mid nineties, I, you know, if a record was coming out on Asterisk, I would definitely at least check it out. And then kind of towards the end of the nineties, they also started out putting, putting out records by uh, Nordic high energy bands, like the Flaming Sideburns or the Helicopters. Oh, they also had the Mooney Suzuki, yeah. which, which I think oh, I have wait, one of their records. They, they put out, I think they put out the last Mooney Suzuki record. They, they might have. And just as a tease, the uh, the the ep- next episode I'm going to be on, they put out a record by that band. Okay. And maybe even something we'll talk about from that band. <laughs> are they yes. uh, are they still active? Um, I'm not sure. Their their web page currently uh, is active, but it doesn't look like they're, they're necessarily um, offering anything for sale. I believe that they lost a significant amount of their stock and personal collection in a warehouse fire a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I do see that the the wiki entry uh, says that there's an upcoming book and then there's a podcast about them that um, I have not not listened to the podcast yet. But um, One record label I wanted to throw out before I get to you, Phil, is Spin Art because it got mentioned in our comments. Do anybody remember Spin Art from the 90s and early 2000s and what yes. they were all about uh they um they kind of they kind of did a garage pop mostly garage pop kind of thing the apples and stereo were on spin art well, weren't uh, they one of the first to go digital I thought that was like their hook um is that they were selling mp3s like very early and and oh, well, getting no, Frank, I wasn't familiar with that, but yeah. Um, and Frank Black was Frank on Black the label. Had a couple of records on the label. Yeah, on Apples the label. and Stereo, Dam Builders, um, Jason Faulkner, Billy Bill Janovitz put out a record on it. Yes. Um, uh, the Magnetic Fields, Tommy Keen. They had a, they had a really interesting collection of bands for what was really only about looks like you know about 15 years um but from what i understand is they like were pretty early about doing uh the in in the late 90s doing digital releases and and utilizing the internet in ways that other labels were not yet taking advantage of because they were sort of scared of you know stuff getting stolen and and people not buying because of the digital um 
but they end, that ended up folding like so many like uh, early adapters to digital. So, but what Phil, what label did you want to talk about, Phil? Well, well, uh, one of the ones that that popped up for me was a uh, Jade Tree. Um, Jets to Brazil, uh, the jawbreak, the post jawbreaker band from Blake from uh, Jawbreaker. Um, loved loved all three of those records. Um, I was going through the list. Um, uh, one of my favorites was Owls. Um, Texas is the reason was also on there for a bit. Um, and that was based out of um, Delaware, actually Wilmington. Yes. And um, Epitaph now owns them. Epitaph now owns it? Yeah, they they purchased the catalog in 2017. Oh, okay. I mean, it's it's still active probably just for catalog, but... Yeah, I mean, they have a really interesting uh, uh, collection of, of bands that have been a part of, I think the last uh, girls against boys record came out on, on Jade tree. Oh, the post. Yeah. The post, uh, Geffen record. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, what was the other one? You can't fight what you can't see or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You can't fight what you can't say. Um, yep. it, I mean, cause it, that was, it, that was perfect for, for girls against boys type of sound. Um, but but Jade Tree is, is these days largely a catalog label, sort of like DeSoto. And, um, right. I mean, does T- Touch and Go doesn't actively release new new stuff. They just they'll just uh, reissue catalog or license. Just for shellac, catalog. though. What's that? Just for shellac, though. Oh, <laughs> true. Um. Yeah, because the other one I was going to bring up was DeSoto. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the kind of early pre emo emo type music was um, was released on DeSoto and Jade Tree and to a lesser mm-hmm. extent Touch and Go and, and things like that. Um, well, and DeSoto had like the Dismemberment Plan. Yes, and I, I think of them as being like that second home for a lot of um label or bands that signed to majors and then left yeah <laughs> like you know yeah. like uh j robbins wrapping up j uh, jawbox and then going with desoto from for uh burning, burning airlines Airplanes, yeah burning uh, airlines, yeah. and then um you had they did the reissues actually of the of the jawbox records yes and then um the guys from Shiner, that's where the first Life and Times record came out after. Um, and I think the last Shiner record, actually, The Egg, was out on DeSoto as well. And um, Jay, we'll, we'll know DeSoto because of Juno, the record that we reviewed. This is the way it goes and goes and goes. Mm-hmm. I think last year, that was a DeSoto release. So 
we've actually gotten to a couple of uh, DeSoto albums. I don't know what the what the computer says in terms of our total count. <laughs> I think well, I, I'm I'm showing three: Juno, Shiner, and Burning Airlines. Has the three. It, oh well, Dismemberment Plan should be on there too, because we did some... Emergency and I many years ago. Mm. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> might need to talk to the computer people about that. Oh boy. Get the intern. Where's Steve? Somebody's getting shake hand. Um, uh, we we have the l- label on that for as a bar suck. Uh, might have been a split release like CD slash vinyl. That could have been the that could have been the for uh, emergency and I. Mm, maybe I, but I remember it being from Desoto. Would that be a sub label that they might have uh, had? That well, bar suck is the uh, West coast like um bellingham washington label that put out the early death cab stuff and their um, and their big band right now is not a surf yeah so interesting hmm oh yeah they they let perhaps an error actually in our... flourished there yeah so. it was uh it was reissued in, in 2011 by barsuck on vinyl oh so that's why it lists barsuck okay <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Jade, are there any particular labels that you wanted to bring up? The only one that really popped out to me that I really felt like I paid attention and sought out for a while was um, Saddle Creek. So, Mm -hmm. you know, going from discovering Cursive and then following that back to Saddle Creek and then getting to Bright Eyes and Criteria and um, The Faint which were a super cool band. And then the Tim Catcher solo stuff, it's sort of like there was a moment there where they had some bands that all sounded like, um, you know, that Omaha scene. And um, it was also early internet too. So it made it easier to do, you know? So if you knew yeah. what the label was, you could very quickly start to go find this stuff. I'm kind of curious that um, for you guys that were like hunting labels pre-internet or, you know, very early internet, like, how are you finding these bands? Like, how did you know uh, who else was on the rosters? So uh, let me jump in with that one. Um, there were a couple things. One is that, so for Estrus, Man or Astro Man, uh, friend, my brother made friends with a local record store owner. He opened up a place that was a coffee shop and record store. And I would hang out there right after I graduated college. And he was a big Man or Astro Man fan. But Estrus like a few other labels like SST were really, really good about putting catalogs in their releases, especially if you got seven inches or LPs. Oh no, they stuck catalogs in everything. Yeah. I actually (laughs) wish now that I held on to some of those Estrus catalogs because they were a gold mine. And then there would be zines, you know, you would have Flipside or unfortunately Maximum Rock and Roll. There was also a point when Alternative Press came with a, catalog for i want to say it was insomnia mail order this would have been in the early 90s another one i wish i had held on to a copy of because i remember ordering it from there ordering things from there and they would have they were basically a distro for a bunch of indie labels so you get this catalog and it would have epitaph and lookout and you know uh frontier and triple x and all these you know remnant labels from indie labels from the 80s and then sub pop and then maybe they'd carry uh you know, reptile amphetamine and all of those. So that was uh, pre-internet the way those catalogs were, were great. And 
there was, especially if you were hooked into something like the surf zine, the surf sound, there was a zine, I believe it was called um, Continental. They also put out compilations uh, that did had really good coverage. And then that, that leads into the second thing. So a label like Estrus would have uh, seven inches that were Tales of Estrus where they'd have four bands on it. And I remember a lot of labels putting out either either seven inches with three or four bands, or they put out compilation CDs. Um, Nitro and Epitaph were really great about selling cheapo $5 uh, compilations to, you know, you see it at Tower Records and be like, five bucks, I like what this band and that band, I'll check that out. But you would get to hear all the rest of the bands on the label. Um, piggybacking on that seven inch, uh, um, philosophy of making them into compilations anyway records which is based out of columbus ohio um, started in 1991 by bela um i'm gonna i'm gonna mess up his last name but it's co crump share crump i don't i for, i'm sorry bela i messed it up um he he did that there are a number they used to call them um the cowtown compilations and he would put four bands so it would be like the new bomb turks and uh thomas jefferson slave apartments and um on one side and there'd be a, a, some lesser known bands and he did a, a whole series of those and sometimes he would just do just columbus bands and then he did like out of town volumes where it'd be bands from cleveland or bands from other parts of the state um which included there are um guided by voices are on one of the splits and the ass ponies from um the cincinnati kentucky era area and it's a still an active label. It's not as active as it was in the 90s, but there are still a lot of really interesting records that he's putting out um, through, uh, you know, time. The, the direction of the label has expanded. It's not just a indie rock, punk rock label. He's now doing stuff that would be, I guess, almost like soul or, or neo soul um, with people like Counterfeit Madison and St. Lennox and which is almost like hip hop. And it's, but it's all really, um, well curated. So, you know, that Bela's got great taste and you're going to get like really interesting records. So I could see people who would just be interested in buying stuff from anyway, because he's just a, got a great sense of, you know, songwriters and musicians. So there's always interesting stuff coming along, um, you know, two or three times a year, either labels or a couple seven inches every year now. Um, and that record, like I said, that's been around now 30 years. So, um, and it's a one man operation, <laughs> which is not bad. Um, what just happened there? Oh, there's a chat. I forgot there's a chat. Oh, wow. There is a chat. What? <laughs> Asterisk records quarterly. There you go. Oh, I gotcha. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think you can post images in chat, dude. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you also, uh, Johnny, you also mentioned Matador. Uh, that's probably more well-known. I think Matador is part of, now is a part of like a, a, an indie collective with Beggar's Banquet and some others. Um, what are some... Well, the, well they, Matt... Matador is one of those one of those labels that um, they they've been just repeatedly flirted with 
with the major system. I mean, they had a distribution deal with Atlantic, and that's how. And that's well, how, it might be distribution, you know. but right now it shows if you go to Beggars Group, it yeah. lists um, that it's the the group is now Four AD, Rough Trade, XL, Matador, and Young Turks are all right. under the under the Beggars Group um, umbrella, I guess you'd hmm. say. Okay. Which uh, Beggars has been around since 1977 and has been a an important label for a long time. Um, and and having you know having 4AD and Matador and Rough Trade all under the same umbrella is a pretty impressive oh, 80s definitely. and 90s uh, <laughs> 90s group. So so what are you pulling off the wall there, Johnny? I'm pulling off uh, What's Up Matador. Whoa. Which is their, uh, I guess that was their 10-year anniversary. And then they had um, Everything is Nice. I'm sorry, the Matador Records 10th anniversary anthology here. And it's just very interesting for me to kind of go in between these two releases. Because on the first, this kind of first um, compilation record, you're looking at Yola Tango, Pavement, Teenage Fan Club, Super Chunk, Unsane, Bailter Space, Helium, Cap Power, Silkworm, Spoon, Liz Fair, The Fall, Railroad Jerk, John Spencer Blues Explosion, The Frog, Chavez, Gotta Buy Voices, Mecha Normal, uh, Cap Power. I mean, this is ridiculous, okay? and then, That is a ridiculous collection. Right, that's that's insane. But then there's a bit of, um, Matador has a slight identity crisis, I'd say. And when you get to the second compilation, you're looking at um, uh, Arsonist, Pizzicato 5, Solex, Khan. Um, like, the sound clearly changes. It's gone... Uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit electronic and I would say lost the original feel of what Matador was. It was like an impeccably curated, uh, exceptionally cool, uh, maybe uh, a little too hipster for, for some people, but you cannot argue with this roster of artists. This is ridiculous. Well, well, the, well you, you basically, Johnny, just described sub pop. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, is it, like the 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 roster of sub pop in 2020 would have would have immediately laughed off the yeah. roster in 1996. 100%. Um I mean talk about a 180 in in what what the label released or anything like that. Um yeah. <laughs> and as a fan, that's frustrating for me. I like to see kind of a, a little bit, back, yeah. You know? I mean I mean yeah, it's it's good to branch out Roadrunner was before they linked up to to major status. They they had tr- they had tried to break into thing other things other than, you know, uh metal and punk. And uh well, I almost wish Aaron Perino was here cuz he was one of the first <laughs> pop acts signed a Roadrunner for about ten minutes, and um, it did nothing. Right. And you it, can go back took, to our interview with him for for info yeah, on that. He covers yeah, exactly. it. And um, I mean, they didn't hit. They didn't hit with anything 
even remotely radio ready until Nickelback. And we all know where that went. <laughs> well, it's interesting looking at Matador, like you mentioned, you know, Pizzicato 5 and and these they have boards of Canada. And then they have a band like Early Man, which I would not have expected Matador to sign Early Man. Like that is early 2000s Metallica influenced uh, alternative metal. Not what I was not what I would think. Um, and then they also signed for a while Times New Viking, which was a band out of Columbus that was at the forefront of what's called the shit gaze music uh, uh, movement, which was basically just burying your mix in a pile of distortion and taking taking the sort of crafted sho- uh, distortion of shoegaze and and completely downgrading it to just absolutely unlistenable noise. Uh, which again, for like you mentioned, such a curated label, it seemed like an odd direction to go. Like they were almost like looking for the thing that was going to be the next cool thing to get them in Magnet Magazine well, at the time I mean, or whatever. Well, the Matador, Matador got Sonic Youth at the tail end of their career. Um, their last. I think their last full studio record was done, was uh, released on Matador. And they, right now, they have right now uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Okay. Their last two albums were released on Matador. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are pretty damn good, I gotta say. <laughs> they have um, three past artists that all start with Un. Unrest, Unsane, and Unwound. They should uh, tour. They should do a tour together. The untour. Mm. The untour. Uh, <laughs> Eric, you had mentioned in the comments. I think this is one we need to talk about. Absolutely, Lookout Records. Yes, because mm. I think most people think of Lookout and they just go, "Oh, that was the, the label that Green Day started on." So that that is true. Um, the importance to me of Lookout, and especially in the '90s, is this was the epicenter of uh, pop punk you had yes green day you had the mr t experience you had um the donna's i believe were originally yes. on, on yep. lookout um almost every punk pop punk band you can think of was on lookout but there was also previous to that operation ivy which rancid grew out of and rancid went off to epitaph um so they were also involved with the uh, the Gilman scene in the, the Bay Area. So this mm-hmm. this punk rock scene that was all ages and very well, um, Lookout was what, really good for that for that scene. Yeah, I mean, a, the majority of their roster was Bay Area pop punk. Sure, and stuff. I'd say my my favorite from uh, Lookout was the Groovy Ghoulies, who I'm a big fan of, and they brought in. Not only the pop punk sound, but they also brought in a little bit of garage rock and a little bit of classic rock into their sound, which is to me what made them stand out from the the tilts and the screeching weasels, which are all bands I've enjoyed. But, you know, that pop punk sound can get a little bit one dimensional at a certain point.
Yeah, that's that's ultimately why I kind of didn't really dig Lookout that all that much. I mean, I mean the, the only the only other band other than Green Day that really stood out, and I mean, and even even the, those Green Day records on Lookout weren't terribly distinctive mm-hmm. from the rest of the roster. Um, were the Donnas mostly because they were you know barely out of grammar school and. <laughs> You know, but yeah, well, I think the, 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 stood the, out. the big bands that the people remember besides Green Day are going to be Mr. T Experience, Pansy Division, The Queers, um, maybe oh, a little I bit totally of totally forgot about Pansy Division on Lookout, yeah. But they were also another label that was really good about putting out seven inch records, that was really good about putting out compilations and building a fan base and an identity for the label separate from the artists. I, I need to mention, uh, and this is not a punk, punk band, but the first Pretty Girls Make Graves record, Good Health, that came out on Lookout, and that's yeah. probably their best record. Um, it has the song Speakers Push Air, and um, which people might remember. I mean, they were only around for a short time, but that that's a really good record, but that is not definitely not a pop punk band. So I was well, in, I, I was surprised to see them on there. As the label went on, they got a little more, um, they stepped a little further towards not quite the garage rock that Estrus was putting out, but definitely more garage noise, um, different experiments that are maybe two steps away from pop punk. Well, the, well, I mean, when they finally folded in the, in the early aughts, I mean, that was what was going. I mean... After after Green Day broke, Lookout signed anybody that had a pop punk sound similar to Green Day, a snotty pop punk sound, and they got. I mean, it, it, I mean, Lookout, Lookout for me, I know it more about its demise rather than its heyday. <laughs> they also had this band, the Vandictives, who had a sub label. Uh, that or a project with them that was called um, Vandictive's Music Live, which were live seven inches. Hmm. So you can find a whole bunch of like four or five song seven inches from from all kinds of bands playing live, usually playing Chicago venues. So that was kind of a cool thing they did as well. Chris, what other labels did you want to talk about? Um, yeah, I brought up uh, J-Tree in the comments, but uh, just expound on that a little bit more. Um, they, you know, they, I think the biggest bands from there would be like, most people remember would be like the Promise Ring. They put out, let's see, the first, uh, I believe the first three Promise Ring records and the second one, Nothing Feels Good, is just kind of like, you know, this huge emo classic and... Well, very emergency. Yeah, very emergency is a great record. It's I think it's overlooked just because of how how big nothing feel good feels good was and just how poppy and fun that record was. And then you go to very emergency and it wasn't really wasn't really as catchy. So I think people just kind of overlooked it. Um, but then you know also one of my favorite bands, uh, Lifetime, um, they put out their before they reformed in the two thousands and put out another record. Their last record right before they broke up. Up, Jersey's Best Dancers is just another absolute classic record that unfortunately they broke up right after it was released so they didn't get the tour for it and it kind of 
I, I, I remember buying that when it came out, I was disappointed that they were, had just broken up, but, um, they could have been, I think that if they had kept going at the time, it would have been huge, but yeah, that just played into, so after lifetime, which had more of like a hardcore punkish feel to it, that, you know, one of the members, uh, he started kid dynamite, which was way more punk and hardcore than lifetime ever was. And you know, at the same time, Jay trees put out the promise ring and just Brazil also put out kid dynamite. And just, that was one of the things about the, the these labels is when they put out different stuff, you know, like J tree had, they put out some damnation records. who was kind of like an early metal core band. You know, if they could put out these emo records and also put out these metal records is awesome. Um, so there's that. And let's see other labels. Um, I mean, it also bears, you know, mentioning some of the other hardcore labels like equal vision and victory that so they really had some classic records as well. Like, um, Equal Vision had converged before they moved over to Epitaph so they could get like a little better distro and um, Victory is mainly a Chicago hardcore label, but they put out, you know, Snapcase, Earth Crisis, um, the Dead Guy Records, which are just amazing records as well. Um, and these are all these, these labels that you knew when you saw that these bands were on them, you kind of knew what you were getting. So, it, you know, it, even if you weren't, too familiar with them you kind of knew what they sound like it's like oh they're on victory they're a victory band well they're probably going to be hardcore so i'll give it a shot <laughs> yeah um uh, uh century media is like that too you know you're getting metal records yeah actually <laughs> so my cousin my cousin is actually the drummer for a band that was on century media i don't know who they're on now but yeah when he was like yeah, we're on Century Media. Is like okay, I know that they're they're power metal, really. So, yeah, I mean, is Century Media rarely veered from the metal genres. So yeah, <laughs> Century Media built their their fan base by scooping up all those hair metal bands that got dropped in '92 and '93 and putting out their next records, and that yep. was their whole business plan. No, 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 that wasn't Century Media. That was CMC. I thought that was Century Media. No, yeah. CMC. Because, okay. I mean, as a child Colander, of the right? 80s, what's that? Was John Colander with CMC, right? I'm tr- I, I forget who's, who's, who created he was the CMC. guy. He was the guy who was like the, the metal guy who like was an A&R guy and he started CMC to like collect all those bands. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's sounds sounds like it because, I mean, CMC only really lasted maybe five years. Mm. And and their entire roster were were major label hair metal bands that got dropped in 1993. And um, I mean, it, it was uh, that, that's not the John Colander uh, label. I think you're uh, I have to look that up. So it was formed by uh, Bill Kane and Tom Limsky, but the roster was to your point, Phil. Uh, let's see here. Bruce Dickinson, Deep Purple, Dawkin, Eddie Money. Slaughter, Warren. Judas Priest, Kicks, L.A. <laughs> Guns. Saigon Kicks. Yeah, Saigon Lover Kick. Boy, Lynch Mob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, hmm. they, their entire roster were, were established acts to release new music. And they, they always had, CMP always had the problem of questionable distribution. So... Like none of the acts would get any kind of any kind of promotion. Not that 
they would have received any had they got proper promotion. I mean, they would not have gotten radio play. If- so th- that kind of leads into another thing about the labels in this era was you had distribution issues. Uh, you had not quite the internet, the start of the internet, you know, the mid, mid nineties, early to mid nineties is when you really started to see the internet come about. So you could find these records and it also made it easier for record stores to actually be able to find them and order them for you. But you had distribution issues uh, for, for smaller labels and for sometimes some of the, uh, the bigger, uh, the bigger indies. And one thing that, you know, the question was asked, how did you find these bands? So if you went to see a band live who was on a label like Lookout, they might have, in addition to their own records to sell, they might have a dozen records from other acts on the label on their table that mm-hmm. maybe they'd known or played with or that the label had given them promos or let them buy some so that, or they had played with and traded with. So that that's another way that, you know, like bands that from the same label would would get their music out there. So like I would go see the Groovy Ghoulies and the Chicks Dig It guys would, the Chicks Dig It would be playing. So then I would find out about them or the the Eyeliners was another band that played with them and were, were a similar sound. So that's another way just to, to get stuff out there. And I can tell you as somebody who tried to run a label in the 90s that getting distribution, especially towards the end of the 90s was very difficult. You had to have a barcode on everything which cost a bunch of money. And oftentimes you had to have friends at the at the uh, distro, and there were also labels that would do. Um, they would distro other labels. You know, they would be they would be friends with whatever with other other label owner, and they would they would trade or they would you know sell their stuff through their distro. Uh, one of the labels that I, I wanted to mention because just because I, there's so many records that I've listened to, and there's a number of records that we've reviewed is Polyvinyl. Um, uh, yes. And they've stayed in, uh, an active, important label basically since 1995. Um, it was, it's run by, um, Matt and Darcy Lunsford out of Champaign, Illinois. And, you know, from the nineties, you're going to know stuff like braid frame and frame and canvas yes. came out on polyvinyl, um, bands like Paris, Texas and Aloha and Mates of State and Matt Pond, PA, uh, Joan of Arc. And then you get into, oh, Sunday's Best. I'm sure you remember that band, Jay. Um, we were all kind of into them in the early 2000s. Well, you can't forget Of Montreal. Yes, and, and the current roster is just as strong. It's, I mean, they're, uh, they've had American football, um, Beach Slang, uh, Of Montreal, Page of the Lion, um, the rentals have put out stuff on polyvinyl and they just continue to, to be a really selective, but really interesting label that um, has, you know, stayed active, which is amazing to do that for that long and, and put out, you know, a, a pretty select group of uh, artists that are, are still, uh, managing to be both artistically interesting and then also sell records. Right. They, they well, definitely have some well-selling or, or nicely selling artists on the record or on the I label. I mean, poly, polyvinyl is one of those exceptions that proves the rule with indie labels. Just um, 
I mean, they never had a a set sound that they were after. Mm-hmm. They they just they just wanted good material, and unlike a victory or a revelation, um, they didn't have they weren't after a specific sort of sound or scene. So, I mean that. I think that contributes to its longevity and its consistency. I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention um discord oh yeah i mean speaking of consistency <laughs> yeah i mean they're again absolutely influential very set in terms of you you kind of know what you're getting but they oh they do throw some curveballs here and there but in the 1990s, just so much stuff that was either wildly influential or, you know, going back now, you can you can hear where um, so many bands were influenced. I, I just I look at the the lineup of artists and and releases in the 90s, and it's crazy. I mean, we all know about the bands that jumped from minors to major labels and quite a few of them jumped from discord not fugazi obviously but um you know shutter to think and Jawbox, and um there's some others here that i'm i'm forgetting about but did dag nasty jump did they did they put out a major label um i can't remember dag nasty did they go to epitaph they yeah they went to yeah, epitaph Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's more of a that's a lateral move more than a. Uh, I mean, not that you know. Epitaph. I don't know. That's Epitaph is one of those labels that that started off with basically as a bedroom label, but at mm-hmm. a point became massive and huge. There's a pretty good documentary about them on YouTube where they talk about getting trailer truck pallets of Offspring CDs and like you know having them outside the warehouse because yeah. they couldn't fit them in and they're selling 5 million units. That's yeah. Discord's never done that. Well, they, yeah. Discord's never done that. Epitaph did not expect that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I think they were hoping that they were going to sell maybe a hundred thousand. I mean, that, that, that 
first video from the smash record was done on the super super cheap and nobody expected that that song to blow up the way it did and i'm pretty sure epitaph had no idea what they were doing like the, suddenly suddenly they're now selling you know 75,000 copies in a week as opposed to in 6 months <laughs> right and and still have yeah. their best selling indie uh, release of all time with oh, that yeah. offspring record mm-hmm. and yeah hooper you got more for us you got another label yeah we were talking uh touch and go earlier so i saw you going through oh. the, the uh archive there yeah there yeah, you go I, I, it's, it's show and tell time you know that tim <laughs> um, the sub label for uh, Touch and Go is Quarterstick. Oh yes, right. And with me here is this beautiful packaging of uh, June of '44 on Quarterstick Records. They also had uh, Rachel's, and um, I think that Seam, um, Mekons, so a bunch of different uh, artists. But June of '44 and the Shipping News are two that really really uh, got to me through the years. And I just want to show you this like incredible packaging. This is from Tropics and Meridians. And this is their second record and it comes with stamps for God's sakes. I mean, wow. Look at this. <laughs> Gorgeous. <laughs> right? Gorgeous. So nice. uh, quarter stick records. Really love that. And then um, on Touch and Go, they put out uh, the Lounge Axe Defense and Relocation Compact Disc. And on that is uh, the Jesus Lizard, Shellac, Sebado, June of 44, uh, Guided by Voices, Archers of Loaf, Bad Livers, Yola Tango, Mekon, Super Chunk, Seam, Tortoise, Rachels, all on this record. Check it out. Okay. Nice. What I thought was pretty cool about Touch and Go was um, I remember reading an interview with with somebody at Touch and Go, and they basically said that they never dropped anybody. Mm. They never officially dropped anybody. What they would say was, oh, your record didn't do so well. Well, you're not getting that as much money for your next one. Yeah. And that was their mentality on that one. Yeah, which I thought, handshake, which I thought was pretty for neat. the most part in like 50-50 split of profits and uh, like very... Oh, the, yeah, that was their deal with Butthole Surfers. Well, yeah, Butthole Surfers end, ended up kind of spoiling that whole party because they brought a lawsuit against um, Touch and Go. Uh, yeah. And then that, that kind of... Well, it was a handshake deal. It was no nothing was in writing. That's right. <laughs> so, Johnny, you mentioned the Mekons. So that, that leads right into talking about maybe Bloodshot Records, mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. came about towards the, the you know, beginning to middle of the decade, which, of course, is the you know, great American alt-country label in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And, you, you know, the Mekons, I believe Nico Case has put some stuff out on that label. Uh, um, Robbie Folks. Yeah, just like all of the Mekons subgroups and split off groups. Um, pretty much, I, I think it was, you know, when I think of the no depression scene, Bloodshot is the, the label I think of for releasing uh, stuff by the, that group of bands. Um, I know we've mentioned a number of Chicago labels or, or Illinois based labels, but one other one that I wanted to mention was Minty Fresh which I became familiar with them thanks to Veruca Salt. Uh, 
Uh, but they actually did have a, a really interesting um, list of artists that that put out stuff in the '90s, um, such as uh, Liz Fair and the Cardigans. Re- uh, when they released stuff in the U.S., it came out on Minty Fresh. Yeah, the and- the first like the pre-hit album. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you see that I. Th- Minty Fresh is interesting in, in the way that Veruca Salt was, in a way, the sore thumb in Minty Fresh's roster because a lot of the bands on Minty Fresh were not, like, grungy power pop. Oh, no, not at all. It's got, like, Betty Severt. Yeah, Betty Severt uh, and, yeah. and... Ivy. I mean, a, a lot of them were, were almost loungy. I, I remember yep. uh, the Jim Ruiz group on Minty Fresh. Yep. And, and they're Tahiti kind of a loungy act. Yep. Papas Fritas, that, that's the Boston connection to Minty Fresh. They were on Minty Fresh for, uh, I think, like an EP and then one full-length record. Maybe they, put a, they put out an album by The Sugar Plastic, which we reviewed like eight years ago. <laughs> I don't know if it was that album, but we reviewed that band. Um, other labels that you guys want to bring up before we uh, before we wrap this roundtable up? Sure, I, I actually have three that are kind of interrelated. I want to bring up really quickly, and that's uh, White Jazz, Bad Afro, and Thunder Woman. So, White Jazz out of Sweden, Bad Afro out of Denmark. They were the the labels over there that were putting out the helicopters, Glucifer, Turbo Negro, mm. um, all of that high energy rock and roll stuff. When, when those bands started to go from putting out their own records to putting out seven inches and, and whatnot, these were the labels in Europe that they were on. And um, that scene never really broke here in the States, but that's, uh, I think that's an, those are important labels to look at. And then there's a one-off label from uh, Germany that put out a dozen records called Thunder Woman that was putting out uh, all-female bands, mostly coming from that high-energy scene. Does Johnny have stuff from that label? <laughs> no, Johnny's looking for something else. Hold that thought. <laughs> you know, this was also the era when, you know, because of, of the internet, or at least email coming coming about that it was maybe much easier for uh, for European labels to get some of the, their stuff uh, to the United States. And, you know, the 90s as a whole was much more looking at uh, independent media, whether it was music or movies or books or comic books or artists. So um, there was a lot more, uh, I guess, cross-cultural and, you know, um, across from Europe and Australia stuff coming in. And then you have guys like Frank Kozik and his label that's bringing in an art crowd, but he's putting out a lot of, um, it was Man's Ruins, name of the label. Yes. He was putting out a lot of stoner rock, but also bands from Europe. And as I said earlier, you know, Estrus is putting out Helicopters and Glucifer and Sub Pop is to a certain degree as well. So you're getting a lot more cross-pollination between scenes and labels in this time period. And I think the, the internet and email especially was a big part of that because you could email somebody in Sweden or Finland or Australia and, you know, not be paying extravagant international phone call bills or 
mm-hmm. worrying about the time difference or anything like that. <laughs> well, there, there was another one, I believe it was out of California, I'm forgetting where, uh, Alias. Hmm. Um, they yeah. kind of folded right at the turn of the century. Um, yeah, they had Archers of Loaf. Yes, their biggest their biggest artist was Archers of Loaf. Um, I mean, it, what what my my attachment to that label was the Loud Family, and they and they released all they they first re released all of the Game Theory material that wasn't on Enigma at the time. Um, they also put out American Music Club and Yola Tango. Uh-huh. And too much joy and knapsack. So I totally forgot about about American Music Club. Hmm. The uh, yeah. John Kalodner label I mean, it, Tim, was that yeah. one was a good label. Was Portrait? Oh, Portrait. Okay, they existed from ninety nine to two thousand three, and they picked up Cinderella, Great White, and Rat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. oh, oh! You mean the port the relaunch of Portrait <laughs> in ninety nine? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> um, yeah. One I, then there, then there were the artists that they signed that didn't release anything. <laughs> probably, yeah. I just remember that being on Metal Sludge a lot. Yes. When that when yeah, that was say, the thing I would check occasionally. No, you um, see, that, that's that's something I I read on a regular basis. Yes, it still exists. Wow. <laughs> uh, one label, one last label I wanted to mention is Slash Records. It was it came up in some discussions. And it also came up in the news recently because the founder, um, Bob Biggs just passed away, but they started as a independent label in 78 and based on putting out a a seven inch by the germs. And then they would put out releases by X, uh, fear, the blasters, Los Lobos, rank and file Del Fuegos. Um, then they started a subsidiary label called Ruby records, which put out albums by the misfits, Dream Syndicate, The Gun Club, um, and and Slash got, uh, I don't know if it was purchased, but they be, became part of the the WIA International uh, yeah, Warner they, Group. They got, the, they got a, attached to Warner pretty early on, actually. It was 96 is when they moved to Warner. Was, so they made it almost 20 years as an independent. But in well, the they, 90s... They were, they were always distributed. Distrib- yeah. Yeah, yeah distributed by warner right um like since i want to say like 1980 but you're going to know stuff from the 90s like imperial teen harvey danger yes. soul coughing yes. failure faith no more yeah um the bodines the romstein <laughs> violent femmes like they it's an impressive list of artists that have put out albums on slash yeah. And um Grant Lee Buffalo. One more. <laughs> You're uh, making me remember their uh their logo on that Faith No More album. Just like yeah. I just had that picture in my head of like that was yeah. my memory of what that label was. Yep. Yeah, no, but Slash always had always almost always had major distribution. If they weren't actually part of the of Warner, they they were they had been distributed by Warner for almost its entire existence i think they were Uh, distributed by none such for a while based on which is a warner company right um (laughs) i didn't realize how old that label was that label goes back to the 60s oh oh, none such yeah none such started in 64 oh yeah 
and it is quite the has quite the history if you look at their discography of of artists and records well, I, the, I only knew them because the, the whole wilco thing happened and they got yeah the, yeah, you know, the wilco got, thing um and and to think none such was largely up until up until the wilco thing really was largely a jazz and classical label yeah and um I don't know what prompted them to to you know operate kind of a kind of as a indie version of of Warner, but you know, but they they got they got Wilco and Wilco did really really well with them. So yeah, and then after they do Wilco, um, they start adding then you know people like um, Black Keys. Yeah, Black Keys. Uh, they do the Punch Drunk Love soundtrack. They they David Byrne and and oh, yeah. Magnetic Fields and Brian Wilson's Smile album came out <laughs> on None Such, and um, so it becomes a much more diverse label. But it took you know three decades for that to happen, which is really interesting. Well, the, um, well, what about Merge? I mean, oh yeah, we didn't we didn't discuss Merge. Well, we can Three always days. do a part two for what we. I'm sure we're missing a few. Oh yeah, uh, Johnny. What were you scrounging around for on your uh, in your there? library? Yeah, it's killing me. Of course, I organized this thing today, and I, you think I can find a fucking thing now? Jesus Christ! Oh. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, not organized by label. What, what are you no, doing? Well, you know, if I had more time, Jay, I would do that. <laughs> but, uh, I was desperately trying to find. Um, my caustic resin records because they're on up records which also featured built to spill oh yeah yes um i think modest mouse for a period of time as well so, modest mouse was on up yes yeah so i was thinking up records was a good one to to point out and another one was um k records i mean you have to talk about k calvin johnson and all that he's kind of oh, yeah. indie rock and the again you talk about the aesthetic the artwork it's all done in-house and everybody's kind of album cover looks the same and I, I just love the kind of the symmetry that that k records brought to the brought to the table i thought that was really cool caustic resin was also on alias can somebody tell me where in god's name is the caustic resin records uh is it how do you got that organized yeah look at c (laughs) get back to me next week is it autobiographical what's what's the order there Uh, (laughs) jeez is the order in which you purchased them (laughs) i was just going for cleanliness (laughs) (laughs) oh so it's color-coded yeah god (laughs) this week (laughs) uh any any last additions, gentlemen? I, we might have to do a part two uh, uh, next year, since we missed. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, we're going to get yelled at for missing some. I'm just no, I, I got I got just one really quick one. Does anybody remember World Domination Recordings? <laughs> no. They had, what they had? Uh, Sky cries Mary, who's been mentioned. Yep. Low pop suicide. Uh, Cyclone Rangers. Shriek back. Uh, Contagion. Um, Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, I was going to say Stanford mm. Prison Experiment is the one. I was like, I knew that label sounded familiar, and they put out Stanford Prison Experiment. That's how I remember them now. They were one of those that lasted for a while in the in the '90s, but then kind of vanished. Well, they they didn't really necessarily have a big breakout artist like a no. lot of the labels did. So, 
Maybe Sky um, Cries Mary, maybe. Maybe that they jumped good. to they jumped to Warner for one yeah. record and then they then they went back to Revelation, I think. Or something like that. I yeah. think um Low Pop Suicide was gonna be there like I that was pushed at, at, at uh college radio. I remember that. It was one of the guys from Gang of Four. Mm. <laughs> That's all I got. So so hard to, I mean, I I was trying to go from memory on on all these labels that I, I never necessarily followed a label, at the time. Um, but the but only then one... again, I knew which ones to not follow, and I mean, unfortunately, K Records did not really suit my tastes at the time, so. I knew if it came out on K, I knew I probably wasn't going to like it a whole lot. That kind of thing. Right. The, I think the only one, and Jay, you can back me up with this, was Saddle Creek bands played Columbus in the late 90s and 2000s so much that you couldn't help but just be like give everything a listen at least once. <laughs> when when they were in town because you know one week it'd be azure ray was playing here and then there was cursive and then bright eyes and then you know uh, all those bands made their way to columbus usually twice a year because it was just a part of the circuit they were hitting in the midwest yep <laughs> yeah I, I, all those bands were working hard they yeah were town. okay yeah, i'm not I, done yet hold on <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Toronto, so we have to start talking about Canadian uh, labels, okay? They oh, have wait. those up there? <laughs> wait, what? We have, we have music and everything. It's really wild. You should come Are you going to, the network group, is that what you're going to talk about? No, uh, first <laughs> we <go>. records. <laughs> some, some Sarah McLaughlin? Shut your filthy mouth, Tim. All right, first of all, uh, Sloan was on and is on Murder Rap. Murder Rap. Well, that's right. their label. There you go. There's the Peppermint EP, what started it all. They they're, also on, they're on Yep Rock in the States. Yeah, well, they're on like 35 different labels in the States. But Yes, well. But Murder, <laughs> uh, Murder Records is still a very much a going concern, and they've just started, uh, Jay and uh, Chris from the band have started their own podcast. So it's really interesting talking about some more obscure stuff from the East Coast that they would have encountered. They also had Thrush Hermit on their label. Oh yeah. Well, you see, they don't they don't put out much outside of them their own band these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they had an they had an interesting run in the '90s with signing Nova Scotia's scene. Yeah, of course, so, all yeah. those guys, all the Sloan guys, now live in Toronto. So, so much for that. <laughs> um, uh, from Toronto proper is uh, Broken Social Scene, so they're on Arts oh, yeah. and Crafts Records, right? There you go to Arts and Crafts Records. Constantine's from uh, Guelph, Ontario, outside of uh, Toronto. They were on um, Three Gut Records, which is now folded, but they put out some outstanding records. Chad Van Galen, uh, he's out of uh, Calgary and he's on Flemish Eye Records. And he's put, uh, I think he's one of our finest artists going right now, a real eccentric uh, making unique records and death from above they were on last gang records 
We so, oh, Canada, stand on guard for thee. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know, if we're going to go international, we would be remiss if we didn't mention an Australian label. And the one that came up was Murmur, Murmur. which is a subsidiary of Sony, but that put out bands that we have reviewed, Ammonia, Blue Bottle Kiss, uh, Something for Kate, also put out albums by Silverchair. So, yeah. Well, that, that's they a, were having butter with Silverchair, so... Yep. <laughs> well, we've done a silver chair episode on here, so we can include them. Oh, and and silver chair as well. Yeah, we we yeah. did the uh, the the sophomore slump. The yep. Sophomore slump. That's right. <laughs> um, and no, so, that's the only Australian record label that I'm aware of. No, I'm kidding. There's lots of them. Um, There's lots of them, but you don't you don't see them much in the states. Or North America, for that matter. Right, because they if they do make it here, they're going to get released on an American label. Right. Th- that and, um, and I mean, because with the Silver Chair Records, you you actually saw Murmur on the late on the label next to Epic, next to Sony. You know. Right. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah. I, like I know the Cosmic Psychos put out records down there, but I have no idea what record label they were on down there i know what they were in the united states yeah uh but i'm yeah. sure you know i mean johnny mentioned arts and crafts that they're actually they're actually a really good kind of indie pop type thing um mom and pop actually as well i'm trying to remember i believe mom and pop now distributes courtney barnett uh, yeah, and uh, they did put out the last couple of Blues Explosion records too. I think. No, that was that was. Um, oh, Blues Explosion, not John Spencer. <laughs> yeah, Blues Explosion. Okay, <laughs> I was gonna say that when John John Spencer kind of stopped being very active, they were still on Cap Matador slash Capital. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right, gentlemen, we have crushed the uh, one hour mark here. I've learned and so much. My head is just full of new yeah, knowledge. Jay's been yes. shockingly quiet. <laughs> I, I mean, what am Absorbing. I going to add with you guys? You're like wizards with this. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we're, we're definitely due. I, I know there are a lot of labels we didn't get to, so we'll, maybe we'll come back to this. Uh, we'll do a part two. We always threaten to do part twos for roundtables. Maybe we actually will do a part two uh, next year. And I'm year. sure there's four of us who will call you on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are. You guys will have them all lined up and ready to go. Uh, we need to thank Phil Fleming, Johnny Hooper, Chris Martz, Eric Peterson, all for joining us, and as well as our commenters over at Patreon, who included Mike Bond, Richard Waterman, Darren Leach, Dave O, Gabriel Gutierrez, Jeremy Amend, um, Justin Wexler, David Gorgos, Scott Witt, Michelle Pennell, and Marissa Buxbaum. Thank you all for your suggestions. If we didn't get to them this time, we'll get to them next time. Part two, 2021, coming at you. Uh, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback at Apple Podcasts and make sure you hit up digmeuppodcast.com to 
submit an album for one of our polls, as well as sign up for the box newsletter, which will arrive at your doorstep every Saturday with a calendar of new releases, as well as reviews of stuff out uh, either that week or just before that week, uh, depending on how uh, much stuff I'm inundated with at at a particular week. Sometimes I'm a week behind with regards to uh, releases, but uh, some weeks you get like five new records. You can't review all of them at once. You got to put some off for a week. That's how it works. And uh, Jay, I'm still waiting for your Go-Go's documentary review. You can send that over anytime. It's been like six months. Watch that. (laughs) You're waiting. I publish everything. What do you, what do you, just plug it in there. Just plug it in. Three sentences. All I need is three sentences from you. It was good. Here's what was good. Here was what was bad. Uh, I gave worthy. my review. I gave my review on Discord. If you want to read it, yes, I know. Oh, good lord! <laughs> I mean, I have a one sentence review of that one. So, <laughs> and don't forget, we do have a Discord channel which is filled with channels. I just added a reissue channel Ooh. to celebrate the reissue of Super Drags in the Valley of Dying Stars. A special reissue coming out in 2021. I know that. Uh, John Davis has been sick of getting pestered about that for the last uh, 19 years. So and I believe it's already, most that. of it's already sold out. Yes. They had to add another 250 uh, uh, in another color, I think, because they're doing like multiple colors and variations and stuff and such. So I got my orange color nice. uh, uh, ordered. <laughs> yeah. I, whipped, I, got the, I got the credit card out real quick when I saw that one was uh, was going up. Uh, So for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of Did Me Out. Did Me Out.